looking at verses 4 through 14 as an example of what I'm talking about today in the power of story. I'd like us to begin with prayer. Father, as we think about the gospel and what you've given us in your word, there is a story that's there. A story about your love, a story about your son, Jesus Christ. And we want to be a people that know that well and have learned to tell that story well. And so I pray today as we talk about these things that you would really speak to our hearts, help us to listen well. Help us, Lord, to be uh, as effective as we can be by the power of your Holy Spirit in communicating your truth to others, to those who have never heard. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is the third message in a four-week series that we are doing here called Just Walk Across the Room. And I hope that you are enjoying it, but even more so, I hope that you are picking up ideas and things that you can use as you seek to build bridges with those who do not know Christ. I hope that you are taking to heart what we're talking about and putting it into practice in the weeks uh, that we have as God gives us opportunity. I really think that if we would all do that, if we would all begin to take these initial steps and build the relationships and work at sharing our faith in this way, that it would have a huge impact upon our community, upon our church, and upon those that we know. And I want to begin this morning by kind of recapping what we've talked about. We're using these metaphors that are in front to help us remember what these message is about. And the first one with this gift here was we talked the first week about the single greatest gift that we could give to someone else. The single greatest gift is that we would introduce someone else to the God who loves them and who cares for them. The God who's their creator and maker so that they might come into a relationship with Him. There's no greater gift that we could give to someone else. And we talked last week about uh, this letter D here and living in 3D. And the three Ds that we talked about were things like developing friendships and discovering stories and discerning next steps as we think about our relationship with others. And this week, we're going to be talking about the power of story. And we have some books here that illustrate or represent kind of how much we all really do enjoy stories. And we're going to talk about two questions in particular today. Number one, how do we talk about God in a way that is clear and passionate? And number two, how do we tell our personal faith story, that is our testimony, in a way that is humble and interesting? We're going to be thinking about those things and hopefully you'll pick up some ideas that you can use in regard to both of those today. I want to begin by affirming how stories are powerful. And everybody likes stories. Uh, if you have young children, preschoolers, or elementary age, and you read bedtime stories to them, you know that they have their favorites. And they'd love it if you would just read those stories again and again and again. They just enjoy it. Uh, many of you as adults enjoy them too. I know my wife has said she's waiting for grandkids so she can go back and reread some of those stories that she really enjoyed. And there are times when um, we just, as adults also, we love to tell a good story. Or maybe it's a joke you've heard. Maybe it's a, something that happened to you or this summer or a fishing trip or something like that. And you love to tell the stories. We were made that way. Good stories are interesting and they are memorable. One of the best storytellers that I know is a pastor named Chuck Swindoll, whom all of you know as well. 
And I, I love to listen to the stories he tells. I've used some of them on occasions. And uh, I also enjoy when I listen to Chuck, he's also got a great laugh. And he'll tell his stories, and then you'll hear this big booming laugh of his own as he kind of laughs at what he was sharing. Well, a few years ago, Gail and I were driving in our car, and we were listening to Chuck on the radio. And he told this story that I've never forgotten. It was a funny story about something that happened to his family. Uh, They had been on vacation for a couple weeks, and they came back to their home in Southern California. And they were ready to just kind of get back and drop everything in the house and, you know, kind of, it's good to be home kind of feeling. Well, when they opened the front door to their house, something terrible was wrong. They opened the door and the stench was just overpowering in their home. And, they, you know, they, they thought initially, is this like gas leak? No, it doesn't smell like gas. I mean, it's just, what is this? It was awful. And they went into the house and they tried to open windows, you know, and air it out. And their eyes are watering and it's almost like making them nauseous. And they're, they're going, what is this thing? And after they'd kind of aired it out a little bit, they began to search for whatever it was that was causing the odor in their home. And they looked everywhere on the main level and throughout the house and they couldn't find anything. And so they thought, well, maybe something's in the attic. And Chuck goes, you know, I did at that point what any father of teenagers would do. I sent one of them up there. (laughs) So he instructed his son to go up in the attic and find whatever it was if something had died up there. And his son's got a mask on and the goggles and the gloves and a flashlight, you know. And he kind of pushes him up through the hatch up into the attic. And again, this is Southern California. It's hot. It's steamy, you know, sweaty. And so his son's up there poking around and looking with a flashlight. And finally he hears this, oh, gross. And it's like, what? What would you find? Here a possum had crawled up into their attic and died. And this possum had been there for probably a couple weeks at least. And it had swollen up and it was so wide now it didn't even fit between the rafters anymore. It just kind of, you know, was there. And there were maggots crawling all over it. And he goes, you know, as they began to check this out, the maggots were not only up there, they had gone down the wall into the master bedroom and they were in the carpet under their bed in the master bedroom. And he goes, we had to have a carpenter over, they had to take out the ceiling, had to take out the walls, had to take out the carpet and just kind of replace the whole thing. Well, two years ago, I was at a pastor's conference in California And I met Dale Burke, who's the pastor that followed Chuck Swindoll at First Evangelical Free Church in Fullerton. And at this conference, he invited a number of us to go over to his house. What I didn't know until I got there was that he not only followed Chuck at the church, he bought his house. So I'm in this house and I go, is this the possum house? (laughs) And he laughed and he goes, yes. And I said, did you know that before you bought it? And he goes, no, I didn't know. (laughs) But he goes, apparently everybody else did because he kept getting asked about it. He actually said, I had to go back in the archives and listen to one of Chuck's old messages to hear the story of what had happened. So he is now the proud owner of the Possum House. Well, I share that to say how stories are powerful and memorable. There are certain stories that you will not forget when you hear them. You're probably not going to forget that story, too. Stories can make us laugh or cry. They can touch our heart. They can get past people's defenses. 
they can illustrate spiritual truth better than just a statement. For example, and take the statement, God is holy. That's a true statement. But Isaiah's vision of the Lord in Isaiah chapter 6 is memorable. When Isaiah shares in that chapter that I saw the Lord seated on His throne, high and exalted, and the train of His robe filled the temple with glory. And I saw the angels, I saw the seraphs surrounding Him, and they were calling out, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord God Almighty. And at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds trembled. When we hear that story, we get a different picture in our mind of the holiness of the Lord. We see what Isaiah saw. We feel what he felt when Isaiah said, Woe is me, for I am undone. For I live among a people of unclean lips. And I myself am a man of unclean lips. Isaiah saw and felt the holiness of God. You can take the statement, God is powerful. That's a true statement. That is propositional truth. But the stories of the miracles that God performed in Exodus illustrate that far better than just a statement. When we hear about God's miracles and how He delivered the Israelites who were enslaved and who were powerless and He set them free and we learn how each of those miracles was directed against a different Egyptian God, the idols they worshipped, just like the idols we saw today, we begin to understand that our God is powerful. The gods of the nations are idols, but our God is the God who made the heavens and the earth. And when we read about the miracles that Jesus performed in the Gospels, Back to back, the writers of Scripture tell us stories about events in the life of Jesus that illustrate that Jesus has the power to heal the sick. He can cause the mute to speak. He can give sight to the blind. He can raise the dead. He can calm the seas, the wind and the waves with just a word. And we hear those stories and we enter in to what the disciples saw and felt. And when we hear them make that statement, Who is this? He commands even the winds and the water and they obey Him. We feel what they felt. Stories are memorable. They illustrate spiritual truth. And that's why Jesus used parables or stories to tell us about God and about the kingdom. We looked at some of those parables last week when we heard the parable of the lost sheep or the lost coin or the lost son. And they grip our heart when we think about how much God loves us. So God has a story, the Bible tells us. The Bible really is His story from beginning to end. And we need to learn to tell that story well. You see, once you decide to walk across the room and you develop friendships with other people, at some point that person may ask you to tell them God's story. And the way that they may ask you to do that, it might be with uh, many different questions. They might ask you the question, well, you know, why do you go to that church over there? Or they might ask you, why, why are you a Christian? Or they might ask you, do you really think it matters what you believe? I mean, aren't all religions the same? Or maybe they'll ask you the question, how do you know the Bible is true? 
Or they might ask you a question, what do you think happens when a person dies? Questions can come in many different forms and occasions, but they are all asking the same thing, really. Is this true? And is there one God? Then how do we know Him? A few years ago, I was um, dropping my van off at one of the repair shops in town here. And I had been talking to the mechanic, and he had a son who worked for him, and I was talking to him. And on this occasion, my van needed to stay there a little bit longer. So his son gave me a ride back to the church. And on the way back to the church, we had started to talk about spiritual things, and he asked me the question, how do you know if you're a Christian? Now, in theological terms, that's what we call a wide-open question. (laughs) That's kind of like lobbing a softball out there and asking you to hit it. And I talked to him that day. We stopped in the van, and I talked to him, and I said, you know, the heart of Christianity is a relationship with God. It's not rules and regulations or do this or don't do that. That's not the heart of it. The heart of Christianity is a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, His Son. And I began to share with him using a Four Spiritual Laws booklet just how God loves us, how He sent His Son to die for us, for our sins, how all of us have sinned and we have fallen short of God's standard of holiness and righteousness. But He's made a way that we could know Him. And I talked to that young man in the van that day and I gave him the booklet and I said, does this make sense to you and is this something you'd like to do? And he said he would. And I said, I want you to take this home tonight. I want you to read through it again. And I want you to pray that prayer. And Jesus will come into your life and He will take you at your word. And this young man that day said that he was going to do that. It was a simple opportunity and kind of a normal course of the day to just talk about spiritual things, raise the question. And here was a young man who asked a question of his own. Why are we so afraid to do that? Like that song that uh, Wayne just sang for us before from Casting Crowns. Why are we so afraid at times to bring this subject up and we kind of dance around it when it's the most important thing that we could ever talk about with someone else? If you are ever asked that question, though, what would you say? How would you explain the gospel to someone simply and clearly? Well, there are many different tools that you can use. Like I said, there are booklets like the Four Spiritual Laws or Steps to Peace with God or uh, Your Most Important Relationship. Uh, Those are tools that can be used, but one of the simple ways to illustrate this truth is by what we call the bridge illustration. The bridge illustration, we're going to have that up here for you, and many of you have seen this before, but it's just a simple way to talk about the Gospel. In this bridge illustration, it just pictures we are on one side and God's on the other, and this gap between us represents our sin. All of us have sinned. We've all fallen short of God's standard of holiness and righteousness, what He's asked of us. And what happens is that people try to bridge that gap in many different ways. They'll try to do it by being religious or being a good person or different philosophies or beliefs, but none of us can do that. And the next slide, it illustrates that the Bible says that the wage as a result of sin is death. Spiritual death, physical death. And we are separated from God because of that. And people try to bridge that gap on their own, but none of us can do that. It's like trying to swim the Atlantic Ocean. 
Some are going to get a little farther out there than others, but none of us are going to make it to the other side. We can't bridge that gap, but God can. And 2,000 years ago, He did. In this next slide, we see how He sent His Son, Jesus, to die for us, to pay the penalty for our sin. And He bridged that gap between us and God. Now, this is something, if you were talking to a person, you could just use a napkin. You could use a piece of paper, and you could draw that out. Just this little chart with us on one side, God on the other, and talking about the gap, the problem of our sin, and how Jesus died to pay the penalty for our sin. The Bible tells us in Romans 5.8 that God demonstrates His own love for us in this, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then... Uh, when you think about that bridge then that God has made possible for us, uh, when we place our faith in Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord, He forgives us our sins. Jesus gave us His promise. He said, I tell you the truth, that whoever hears My word and believes Him who sent Me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. Jesus is saying, if you believe me, if you take me at my word and you believe my Father who sent me, you will have eternal life. And you will cross over from death to life. Go back to the, uh, the uh, diagram here again. When you think about this diagram, I want to ask you, and this is what you could do with someone you were talking to, where would you put yourself on this diagram? Where are you in relation to God? Do you remember when Bill Hybels was talking about his friend Dave and we saw Dave in the video clip last week that he was talking to? He was writing this out on a napkin with Dave and they were at a restaurant and he's sitting in the booth and he asked Dave, you know, where would you put yourself? And Dave said, you really want to know? You know, and Bill's thinking maybe he's going to put himself there or there, you know. And, and um, Dave goes, I'm in the next booth. And that's when Bill thought, this is going to be a long, slow walk. But here's a guy who feels so far from God that he's not even on the chart. Where would you put yourself? Have you made that decision to place your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord? Have you asked Him to forgive your sins? Have you crossed over from death to life as Jesus said? You know, it's not hard to do that. It's just praying a simple prayer and meaning it in our heart. It's not the words that we use, but it's the attitude of our heart that's most important. An attitude that acknowledges that, God, I have sinned against You. And I need You in my life. And Jesus, I ask You to forgive my sins, to come into my life and be my Savior and Lord. If You... Pray that kind of prayer and you sincerely mean it. God will take you at your word and He will begin a new relationship with you and as you get to know Him better, you will continue to grow in that relationship. That's His promise. That's the heart of the Gospel that He has given to us. You know, I think of Bill's story when he said with Dave that this is going to be a long, slow walk. Sometimes we share the Gospel and we don't see a result immediately and we can kind of feel like, you know, did I blow it? Did I not communicate that well? But the truth is, we can't push anyone into the kingdom of God. All we can do is communicate God's truth and then leave the results to Him and allow His Holy Spirit to work. 
I've shared with some of you before the story of how I had that happen with my brother-in-law. When I was just in college, I met with him and I went over to my sisters and my brother-in-laws and I shared, uh, using the four spiritual laws, I shared uh, how God loves us and how we are sinners and how Jesus Christ died for us and that by accepting Him as our Savior, we could have eternal life. In the four spiritual laws booklet, at the end, they also use two circles. Circles that illustrate a self-centered, self-directed life and a Christ-directed life. And the self-centered person is really just following his own plans and ideas and going his own way apart from God. But the Christ-directed person is someone who has yielded his life to Jesus Christ. He's yielded the throne and he's asked Jesus to be his Savior and his Lord. I went through that and I asked my brother-in-law, which circle best represents you? And he really didn't respond to that at all. Instead, uh, my brother-in-law is a salesman And so he just kind of critiqued the way that I presented everything. You know, he kind of did it. This was good. This made me a little better. I like that story. Now this was... And he kind of went through and critiqued the whole thing and just left it there. And I remember thinking, did he hear anything at all of this? And about six months later, I got a phone call from him. He'd been driving on the freeway between sales visits from St. Cloud down to the cities. And it all came back to him. The bridge, the circles, where was he in his relationship with Christ? And there, in his car, on the freeway, he felt the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And he opened up his heart and he asked Jesus to be his Savior and Lord. My brother-in-law came to the Lord first and then my sister. And what a joy it was to see the change that he made in their lives. You see, sometimes we may present the truth and it may be months or it may be years before It comes back and the light goes on and people begin to understand what this is all about. But what a joy to be used in that way. You see, our part is to tell God's story in the clearest and best way that we can and leave the results to God and allow Him to work. Thirdly, you have a story to tell. And God wants you to tell that well. If you have come into a relationship with Jesus Christ and He has changed your life, you have a powerful story to tell of what God has done for you. And what makes your story powerful is the fact that it is real and it is personal. It's your story. It is authentic. It is what Jesus Christ has done in your life and no one can take that away from you. They might disagree with you or they might argue in some fashion, but they cannot take away what God has done in your life. And that is a powerful message to give. The Apostle Paul loved to tell his faith story. It is recorded in Acts chapter 26. It's basically his three-minute version. If you were to read that, it's a three-minute personal testimony. And Paul is sharing that when he is on trial before King Agrippa and Festus. He is in prison. He's brought before them to testify and he tells his story. I was a persecutor of the church. I persecuted those who belonged to what was called the way. Those who believed in Jesus Christ. And I was on my way to Damascus ready to arrest and bring to uh, justice or bring to be put to death those individuals who had chosen to follow Jesus. When on the way to Damascus, I was struck down by a light brighter than any light I've ever seen. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And I said, Who are you, Lord? 
And he said, I am Jesus. And Saul came to realize that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. The one he claimed to be. And Saul's whole life turned around. And as he shared this story so passionately, so powerfully, that King Agrippa and Festus were both touched by it. And, and they, they thought, Paul, are you trying to persuade us to become a Christian in such a short time? And Paul says, whether a short time or long, I wish that all of you could become such as I am except for these chains. Paul's testimony was powerful. He tells us more about it again in Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 to 14, where he gets at the heart of what happened in his life. And I want to read that for us. He said in verse 4, he shares what he once put his confidence in. He said, If anyone else thinks he has reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, I was faultless. He is going through his list of credentials. He went to the best schools. He belonged to what he thought was the best uh, you know, faith system. He was from the tribe of Benjamin, which is where Saul had come from as king. He was named after Saul, this great king. He's sharing all these kind of things that he once took great pride in. But now he says, whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. And what is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For whose sake I have lost all things, and I consider them rubbish. They are trash. That I might gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. Paul's whole passion and heart desire changed. He said, I want to know Christ and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in His sufferings becoming like Him in His death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. I'm not there yet. I haven't arrived in heaven yet, but I am pressing on toward the goal. Think about Paul's life. What was Paul like before he met Christ? Paul was arrogant. He was self-righteous. He was religious. He was zealous. He consented to the murder of Stephen, the first martyr. And he was a persecutor of the church. What was Paul like after he met Christ? He was still zealous, but his focus had changed entirely. And his focus now was to know Christ and to help others to know Him too. The very people he once thought had no chance with God, the Gentiles, he was now a missionary to, to bring the Gospel to each of them. How did he view the things that he once took pride in? He called them rubbish. 
And instead, his joy and his delight was knowing Jesus Christ. What's your story? One of the best ways that we can tell our story clearly and succinctly is to think about what we were like before we met Christ and what we were like after. Some of you may have stories like this, that I was striving, I was searching, but now I'm at peace. I was self-destructive. I had behaviors in my life that were hurtful, but now I'm healthy and whole. I was guilty. I felt the weight of my sin and the shame, but now I am liberated. I am free. I was fearful, but now I am confident. I was despairing, but now I am hopeful. Each of us has a story we could tell. I could tell a story in my life of feeling aimless and searching for meaning and purpose and wondering what is it that I'm supposed to do with my life and meeting believers who God brought into my life who had a direction and a purpose and a joy that I wanted to know too. And when I came to know Christ, He turned my life around. And I'm a different person today because of the grace of Jesus Christ. When we tell our story, we want to keep it simple and humble and succinct. Most people don't want to hear the two-hour version. You know, they want to hear in a short kind of summary way, what happened? Why do you believe what you do? What has Christ done for you? So don't go on and on. And don't go off on rabbit trails. Stay focused. When you share your story, don't use churchy words that an unbeliever probably isn't going to understand. Speak in common words. And don't ever speak in a way that sounds superior or arrogant or holier than thou because it will just turn people off. We are all sinners. Saved by His grace, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. I want to give you an assignment this morning. You probably didn't know that in this series of messages you were going to be given homework, but there's a little bit here. I would like you to write out your faith story in 100 words or less. I'd like you to think about that change that Christ made in you and pick a theme, a theme that seems to describe the change that took place in your heart and tell your story in 100 words or less. Now, if you would like someone else to read that, you want some friendly feedback on that, here's the offer that I and the other pastors are going to make to you. If you would like us to read it and give you some comments on your testimony, we'd invite you to email it to us. You can send it to Pastor Ron or Pastor Dan or Pastor Aaron or myself. Our email addresses are on the back of the bulletin and we'll read it and we'll send you some brief comments in return. If it's six pages long, we're probably not going to read it. If it's 100 words or less, that's what we're looking for in that ballpark, and we'll give you some feedback. If you're a student here, I want you to do the same thing, and you can send that to Pastor Aaron. It would be a great way for him to hear your testimony and to know what, what God has done in your life, and he'll respond to you. Or if you're involved in the different ministries of the church and you want to send it to Dan or Ron or me, that's fine, whoever you want to pick, and we'll take a look at those things. And then secondly, would you pray for an opportunity to share your faith story. Let God know you're ready and you're available. And pray for an opportunity when you can tell your story. Peter wrote in 1 Peter 3.15, 
that we should set aside Jesus Christ as Lord in our hearts and that we should always be prepared, always be ready to give an answer for the hope that we have, yet do that with gentleness and reverence. Those are good words, and that's what this is about, being ready to share the truth of the Gospel and to share our story and do it with gentleness and respect. And then lastly today, I wanna, uh, we're going to close our service with a reminder about a great walk-across-the-room opportunity, comedy sports. Gail and I saw comedy sports at the Free Church Conference this summer, and they were uh, just really funny, and it would be a good relationship-building time. It's not a Christian message that they're sharing. It's just comedy. And it's with a competitive kind of theme, and they involve people from the audience, and it's fast-paced, and it's improv theater. And you're going to see an example of that here. And I want you to be thinking about who you might bring that would enjoy something like this uh, that you could bring them to. And then I'll come up and close our service in prayer. Would you show the video now? Get ready to not comedy about sports. It's comedy played as a sport. The national comedy sensation where everybody laughs. Comedy sports is good, clean fun and suitable for all audiences. It's customized for your organization and it conforms to any size venue from an office to a stadium. Comedy sports. Comedy sports. The fastest way to funny. The quickest way to comedy. Good day, ladies and gentlemen. We're coming to you live from Comedy Sports. Let's take a look at how comedy sports has become such an unbeatable force in the comedy field. First, witness the sheer comedic power of their live shows. Two teams of improvising champions battle it out in a comedy competition powered by audience interaction. So you're telling me that they created on the spot with the help of the audience? That's right, Bob. It's head-to-head, full-contact funny. Lightning wit, powerful puns, and limber imaginations are the name of the game. Here, guest comedy sports players Wayne Brady and Dan Castellaneta, the famous voice of Homer Simpson, take to the field. Well, let's recap. Here's how a comedy sports show works. Players take to the field, ready for comedic battle. The referee explains the rules and the fouls that keep the show fast-paced and friendly. The players create the comedy on the spot, customizing it to your organization. The audience yells suggestions, helps pick the games, and ultimately decides the winners. It's interactive from start to finish. With that, let's turn our attention off the field, where you can really see the source of the team's incredible strength, the coaching staff. The success of comedy sports has not come from simply being funny, but from the their ability to coach corporate teams in an insightful and entertaining way. Let's take a quick look at this signature training style. Comedy sports trains the business world of the soft skills that aren't taught. <laughs> All right, I think that gives you enough of a look at it to get an idea. And this would be something that I think, you know, uh, you can think of friends, office workers, other people that you might want to invite that are not going to feel threatened by it, but just really enjoy a good evening together, building relationships and taking one step closer in their relationship to Christ. Well, let's close our service with prayer today, and would you stand? Father, as we think about the work you've done in our life, we want to share that good news with others. And we pray that you would give us that courage, boldness to introduce others to Christ, to tell our story, and to be sensitive to the needs of others as we think about doing these things. Father, thank you that we're not alone but that by your Holy Spirit you give us the words to share and you do a work in us that enables us to be your witnesses. And so bless each one as they take those steps of faith and as we go to classes or go home or head out into the week, Father, help us to be your witnesses in this world. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.